open your Bibles to Psalm 40, the book of Psalms, chapter 40. If you have a borrowed Bible in the back, it's page 267. You're free to go grab one if you don't. We're just going to dig right into it. Psalm 40, verse 1. Read with me. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Pray with me again. Father, we thank you that this day is about celebrating what you have done and what you will continue to do as we look to the past and see your faithfulness written over and over again. We pray that the words of your scripture would come alive to us as we thank you, as some of us sit in trials that continue right now, and some of us will encounter them very soon. Lord, we pray that you would give us the fuel to encounter anything that comes our way. Because of your faithfulness, Lord, we can trust you. I pray that that would be the resounding understanding from your text today. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, we have a lot to celebrate and we're just going to get into it. We are not doing this whole birthday Sunday uh, in these next two Sundays to pat ourselves on the back. That's not what we want you guys to come away with. This whole day, these next two weeks is about celebrating God's faithfulness to us Because the reality is that if we don't celebrate, if we don't take time to do that, then all of God's blessings and all of the goodness and all the things that he's done get locked in the past. And our hearts tend to become ungrateful and cynical if we don't take time to celebrate. The great uh, author Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, writes about different spiritual disciplines that help us grow. And the last chapter is actually called the discipline of celebration. The last of the corporate disciplines that he mentions is the discipline of celebration. This is what he says. Celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of consciously chosen way of thinking and living. When we choose this way, The healing and redemption in Christ will break into the inner recesses of our lives and relationships, and the inevitable result will be joy. 
So this morning, we look to God's word. We look to this psalm to focus and deepen our ability to celebrate all that God has done for us. Does it sound good? Yeah. Celebrating what God has done in the past is our fuel for praying for and expecting deliverance in the present and in the future. And we can trust him because he is faithful. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how this psalm remembers what God has done in the past, recognizing what he's done through others, realizing that what he's done comes at a cost, and then retelling what he has done to others, to everyone. So first we're going to look at remembering what he's done in the past. Read with me again verse 1. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. The writer of the Psalm, King David, is clearly looking backwards at an experience of deliverance and rescue that had already happened. He's not currently in the middle of this particular trial that he's describing. It's almost like he's telling us a story. Like someone came up to him and said, hey, David, whatever happened with that time when you were in the middle of that thing? And he's like, well, let me tell you a story. I waited patiently. And this means that there was a time of doubt and uncertainty with a lack of answers. That before the deliverance came, there was a period of waiting that had no clear end point. And here's the thing. We don't know how to do that anymore. See? <laughs> you guys are like, when is he going to say the next thing? You can't wait even for like a second. Jeez. You're like, get on with it already. Like in today's world, if you have to wait for something, it's probably because someone's not doing their job, right? Like if you're at a restaurant, like the busboy or it's the waiter or it's the cook, it's somebody. Somebody's not doing their job. So when it's God's job to get us out of a situation that we're in, we're waiting for a new job or we're waiting for a place to live or waiting for a new teaching pastor or I don't know, how do we wait for God to show up for his deliverance? What does it look like to wait patiently versus impatiently, where we give him a deadline, where we've already decided what the outcome and the timeline should look like, and when he doesn't answer according to our timeline, it's time to move on and maybe try something else. But listen to what David says. It says, he waited patiently and he inclined to me and what? Heard my cry. That means that he was not waiting in some kind of withdrawn or complacent, resigned way. He was actually seeking God in the midst of waiting, not passively, like we learned a couple of weeks ago with the persistent widow. Not receiving a clear answer to prayer is not God's failure to act. It is an invitation to press on. There is a paradox of persistence and patience. We have to endure with expectancy when we are waiting for God because it is worth waiting for. And it also means not minimizing the difficulty of whatever situation of waiting that we're in. Look at verse two. It says, he drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. No one uses that word today, right? It's only in the Lord of the Rings. It means a swamp, okay? It's like, bleh, you're like in the mud. It's a sense of helplessness. It's a really difficult situation. We have to be realistic about how difficult things can be, not say, oh, I'll get over it. 
things can get that bad. And in this text, it's not clear exactly what the situation for King David was. It's not like Psalm 51, where the situation was bad because he actually sinned and got himself into it. It's not that specific, which actually allows it to apply for us to all sorts of pits and swamps and puddles of mud that we might be walking through. And that's puddle of mud with one D, not two, right? Not the like terrible band from the 90s, although uh, that is a pretty terrible situation to find yourself in. Um, <laughs> but honestly, we fall into the pit and we have to be honest about how difficult it can be. Some of us can really identify with that right now as we are in the midst of one. But what does it say? Second part of verse two, he drew me up out of the pit and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. A sure foundation, a place of stability where the messiness of difficulty is no longer gnawing at you on a day-to-day basis from dirty to clean, from dangerous to secure. Here's the thing, guys. You have to walk through the mud to be saved from it. Experiencing redemption, like we're reading about here, is only available to those who stick around long enough for things to get messy. If you want to remain safe and for things to be easy, I don't recommend following Jesus. And definitely don't commit yourself to a local church, especially not this one. (laughs) If you want to be able to celebrate deliverance, however, you're going to have to walk through the mud. But even once we've experienced deliverance, it's tempting to want to retreat into a situation of comfort. Like, I've paid my dues already. I walked through the mud. We want to believe that this rock that God sets our feet upon can be something other than continuing to trust Jesus every single day. Last year, we celebrated that we finally had a Sunday morning venue. The year before that, we celebrated our founding pastor, Casey Fritz, coming back from sabbatical. This year, we're celebrating a whole bunch of things, including that God has brought us Ryan and Aaron, that we have a new teaching pastor, but none of these are the solid rock that God wants us to place our feet on for foundation. Our rock must remain and will remain Christ alone. Look at verse three with me. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. This is speaking of memorializing everything that God has done, the redemption that we've experienced, and the goal is to prevent us from forgetting everything that God has done. And this is pretty meta because we're actually reading the lyrics to the song that he wrote about the thing that he got delivered from right now. It's like, he put a new song in my mouth, Yeah, it's this one, (laughs) memorializing what God has done. And it's so important to do that if we are going to remember it. How we do this if we're not, you know, expert songwriters? Here's a few suggestions. You can journal, you can write letters to friends, take a photo, any kind of expressive outlet of praise. What has God given you to be able to memorialize his work in your life in a form that you can not only keep for yourself, but you can share with others. 
as David is doing right now. Even just sharing it with somebody in your discipleship group so that they can bring it up when you forget. Share what God has done in your life. This leads us to the goal of why God rescues us, what he wants us to do with that. At the end of verse three, it says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The result of declaring God's good work in our life is that others will come to trust him. You become a walking display of God's faithfulness, an advertisement of his love. Many of us know people who have experienced a like, supreme level of difficulty that like, maybe we couldn't even imagine. Some of you are even sitting in this room who have come out on the other side of a trial with even stronger faith. For me, some of my friends, I, I look at them every time and I can just see that story playing out over and over again, what they've endured and what God has brought them through. And that is what is being described here. The psalmist wants us to see his face as a billboard of God's faithfulness. Like, this too can be your story. And that is exactly what happens. God uses us for that. In a transition to this next point, he says in verse four, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And what he's saying is that there is an alternative to waiting on the Lord. There is an alternative to trusting him, and it is to turn to other people for advice or for help who might advise you to figure it out on your own, right? People that might discourage you from waiting on the Lord, that he, it might not be the only solution to the situation that you're going through. The going astray after a lie, the lie is that we can pull ourselves out of the pit, that we can be our own saviors. And it's very tempting to believe that the longer and longer we have to wait, the more and more other options other than Jesus look more tempting. But that is why David is writing, to remind us of the truth that only God can bring rescue that we need. And so once David has remembered what God has done in his past to give him the fuel for his present trial, now he is freed up to recognize God's work in others. Read with me verse 5. It says, you've multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So he begins to address God now in the second person. God, you've showed up. Now that he's remembered and reflected what God has done in this one specific example of rescue in his life, he is freed up to see even more examples of ways that God has shown up in the lives of other people. And we know this. We know that when we're so focused on the specifics of our own trials, we miss the stories of grace and incredible faith going on all around us. And we need to be able to see our own stories as part of a bigger story, the larger narrative of even of our own lives, of our, of our church community, and even the story of God's people throughout history. God is sovereign enough to weave even the smallest and most insignificant details of our lives into a meaningful tapestry that spans the length of time itself. 
And notice that David turns his attention to the us, the everyone else that is a part of his life. He says, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. He can see God's work in the lives of the people around him because everyone's got stuff that they're going through. Everyone. This is not to minimize your own personal struggle, but to realize that you might have already lived the answer to somebody else's prayer and vice versa. Now, if we live in dense community with others, like the family that the Bible says that we actually are, where we are sharing our stories and our struggles with one another, God might have placed you in somebody else's life because he has already brought you through something that your brother or sister is currently going through. And you are God's tool of encouragement to them. And the situation might be reversed where they are able to bring you encouragement another time. He has woven our stories together and all these details work together to tell of something much greater than each individual part. That is why the book of Hebrews calls him the author of salvation. All of these smaller stories of deliverance are meant to link together and build our trust in him for the future. They're not just meant for us. These stories of God's faithfulness and deliverance are not just meant to reinforce our faith, but to reinforce the faith of everyone around us. And with all of us sitting here, and of all of the people that he has placed in our lives, he has supplied more than enough stories for examples of his faithfulness. If we're still not convinced of this, then it is not for a lack of evidence because there are more stories than can be told, David says. And this means that they are both more numerous, there are more stories than we have time to tell, and that these stories go beyond mere numerical data, right? We can measure God's faithfulness in a number of different ways, and there are important stories that we're gonna hear next week and other stories that we don't even know about, but it's important to recognize that some of the most important evidence of God's faithfulness is not always immediately evident. For example, what does growth and maturity look like in discipleship to Jesus? It doesn't look good on a pie chart or a graph, and it can't be easily measured. We're gonna be talking about, you know, baptisms and giving and all of these things that God has done, people showing up at a neighborhood dinner, but what about the brother or sister who is struggling with their faith and joined a discipleship group with people that they didn't really know? When they, everything within them just wanted to stay comfortable and they took a step of faith and did it. Where's that measurement? We can't always see it, but God is faithful. We don't know all the stories, but we have enough stories to encourage one another with the ways that God is showing up in our life. And we need, thirdly, to realize that God's deliverance costs something. Read verse six with me. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Sacrifices God has not desired. This means that there is nothing 
that we can bring to the table to win God's favor in the story of deliverance. David has a new awareness that no sacrifice that he can offer, no religious duty that he can perform will be enough to provoke God to come through for him in any sort of way. Now, the sacrificial system of Israel is what's in view here, where you would sacrifice an animal in order to atone for the sins uh, for yourself and even for the entire nation. Actually, just last week, the Jewish community celebrated Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, the one day a year when the high priest would go in to the temple to sacrifice an animal for all of the sins of Israel. And this is what's in view here. And what he's saying is that God cannot be manipulated by sacrifice, by religious duties to coming through for us. We don't get extra points for performing or participating in a church service or rhythms although often through these practices, God wants to bless us, but not because we won his favor. We don't experience God's deliverance because we have done something to earn it. And ultimately, even the king, King David, who is somebody that was supposed to stand in for God's people as someone who has come to lead them in following God's law, ultimately, he failed as well. King David fell short when he became an adulterer and a murderer. And what it says here in verse 7, it says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, refers to when the king of Israel would actually make a copy of the Torah, of God's law. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says that the king is supposed to make a copy of God's law so that he will lead other people in following God's law and in performing what God wanted them, but he fell short. And there was only one who could actually fulfill the requirement of God's law, and it was King Jesus. That is why the book of Hebrews quotes these very verses when it talks about what Jesus came to do in fulfilling the sacrificial system on our behalf. He was the perfect sacrifice of atonement. And that is why David can say that sacrifices are not what God needs or desires because one day the true king of Israel would lay down his life and be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, to bring us the rescue that we needed the most, not just out of an individually difficult circumstance, but out of the depths of the pit of our own sin and slavery to our selfishness. And if we have experienced this kind of deliverance, there is one thing that should come very naturally to us as a response. Verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. That means once you've experienced God's deliverance, you must retell it. You cannot keep it to yourself. The greatest evidence of growth that you've experienced God's provision of deliverance and his rescue is that you want to share it with others. This word here in verse nine for glad news is the same as in the New Testament when it says gospel. 
and I'm speaking to those who would call themselves Christians here, if we really take time each day to remember who we were and in what kind of state we would be in without Jesus and everything that he has saved us from, we would not hesitate as much from desiring that same story to play out in the lives of everyone around us. Anything that is worthy of celebration in our lives, anything else, we naturally recommend to other people in our lives, right? It's so natural for us. Like, oh, you gotta check out this new place I tried. It's this little hole in the wall and you might miss it if you drive by, but I found it because I was walking. I'm really unique and special. And there's actually a, a whole world where this goes on called Yelp. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I'm so unique and special and my criticism of this place really, really matters. But we really wanna share the great experiences that we've had with other people. That's when Yelp is actually working well. And there are a lot of reasons why it's so hard for us to do this when it comes to God's work in our lives. Why is it so hard to share out of an overflow of joy for what God has done for us? I'm sure you can think of a reason that's most relevant for you in this moment. For me, I always tend to rationalize what God has done in my life. I become cynical and I think that, oh yeah, that would have happened anyway. Even the stories that we celebrated today of God's faithfulness, and we're gonna hear more next week, it's so easy to minimize God's work in our lives with explanations, more natural explanations, but we forget that God created nature, right? Even especially the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us. The less and less we celebrate God's work in the gospel, the more we think we deserve it. But once we've experienced God's blessing, we need to reflect on it and then we need to celebrate it. Blessings must lead to thanksgiving and celebration. The process of experiencing a blessing is not actually complete unless we've expressed gratitude for it and have celebrated it. When good things happen to us that are not a result of our own effort or hard work, they are a blessing, and we are supposed to celebrate them. There's a great story uh, of an author named Dorothy Day, uh, who before she became a nun, who was a social justice warrior, she was actually a bohemian author living in New York City, running from God. She wanted nothing to do with God. And she became pregnant, and the father actually abandoned her. But in the process of carrying her baby and giving birth, something within her changed. And she suddenly had these inexplicable new desires welling up within her after she gave birth. And author David Brooks describes it that she felt like she she needed somebody to thank. And she goes on to write this. She says, no human creature could receive or contain so vast a flood of love and joy as I often felt after the birth of my child. With this came the need to worship and adore. That is what we were created to do. Friends, God keeps his promises to us. He blesses us and he is faithful even when we are not. Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot 
deny himself. We are so quick to forget and to question God's plans and his timing. When we're down in the mud and we jump to accusing and asking God, where are you? Instead of drawing near to him, we stand far off and question his timing and his decisions like a, like a backseat driver. <laughs> I wouldn't have taken that turn if I were you. God, you gotta go right, now left. But this psalm teaches us to look backwards, look at our past in ways that God has been faithful to us when we are discouraged. And it suggests this, and after this we'll close. Maybe every time that we are craving for some new experience, the answer can be found in something that God has already done. Maybe it's waiting for us in an old journal somewhere. Maybe it exists in the story that a friend has yet to share with you. Maybe it's not some new experience or a different community or an edgy Christian podcast or something like that. Maybe we have to think about what God has done for us in the past. Ask for faith to so young. How he was at work without rationalizing it and saying, oh, back then, oh, I don't know, I was so young and naive and I didn't really know what life was all about. Don't do that. Maturity in the Christian life is not about leveling up. It is not about feeling more evolved than you used to, looking down on your past self and on others. Maturity is having the eyes of faith to see how merciful God has been to meet you in a way that you can receive and understand in each stage of your story. And then celebrating it, celebrating his ongoing faithfulness to you. He is faithful. And if you're sitting here thinking, I just can't think of anything. I can't see it. Don't be discouraged. It takes time. As David said, he waited on the Lord. It takes prayer and reflection and time to be reminded of what God has done. Spend time asking him to show you. And if you're here and you do not follow Jesus, you can actually still be a part of this. You may not have specific examples from your life when you can think about God's being faithful to you, but he has been faithful to you. His faithfulness to you was perfectly demonstrated by Jesus when he came and lived a perfect life on your behalf and died the death that we all deserved. Jesus got down into the mud with us. Philippians chapter two says this, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus got down in the mud. He went into the pit. But three days later, he was raised out of death, and now many will see and put their trust in him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 goes on. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is faithful. He was faithful to his son. When his son was in the pit of death, he brought him out, and he will be faithful to us. Amen.
Let's pray.